The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. It's the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. This morning we pick up in verse 67 of Luke's Gospel. The word of the Lord for us this morning. And after his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promise to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the land or from the hand excuse me of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days and you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation and to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace and the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel this is the word of the Lord for us this morning Let's pray. Lord, you are good and you are kind to us. You are marvelous and miraculous as we've seen in this narrative of Zechariah and Elizabeth by the hand of Luke. You do great and mighty things. You're a God who has been at work for centuries, working out your plan of redemption for your people. You're a God who keeps your promises. You are a God who never forsakes his people. You are God who is determined to redeem them at all cost, even the very blood of your own son. And we come before you with humble hearts as people who have been redeemed by his blood. People who do know what it is to recognize that we are hopeless sinners in need of a savior and to find our only hope in Christ Jesus. People who've experienced your forgiveness who've been redeemed by the blood of your son, who've been transformed day by day into his image, that we might live lives of peace and lives of holiness and righteousness before the world. And as your people, we come before you and we stand underneath your authority as we listen to your word. Open our hearts and our minds, Lord, to to see beyond Zechariah and Elizabeth and John to see your glory displayed in your Son. For we pray it in his holy name. Amen. You may recall, if you've been studying along with us, that there is a purpose for which Luke writes this gospel. His purpose is to help a man by the name of Theophilus, who 
uh, no doubt is struggling with doubts, who is wrestling with his faith and trying to, to, to wrestle with these latent doubts in his mind about Christ and, and who Christ is and what Christ has come to do. And so Luke is set out to write this, this, this gospel in order to help Theophilus with his doubts, in order to give him assurance and a, a firm foundation for his faith and help him to show that, that it's completely rational and wise and right for him to place his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is indeed the Savior of the world, come to redeem not only him, but all who will place their faith in him. And I think it's important to reflect on that as we think about Luke chapter 1 and we start to ask the question, why does Luke give so much territory to the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth? Why is this so important that he talks about it so much and there's so much for us to look at in regards to this? It's because it contributes in some way, at least in Luke's mind, to that foundational firmness of truth under which our faith is based in Christ. He's wanting to show Theophilus and us and anyone who will read his gospel that Christ is who he said he is and that he's a real, that he's not, that he's not a, a, a myth, that he's not a, a made-up story, that he's in, that, in fact an, an, a historical figure, a historical person, God who became man in time and space, who came near to us and who did the things the Bible actually says that he did. And the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth is important to Luke because he wants to show Theophilus that God isn't doing something new in Christ, that what Christ is and who Christ is and what he's doing in his life and ministry and death is actually the continuation of something very old, that it is one unified plan of redemption that God has been working for generations and generations through his people, and Christ is the apex and the culmination of all of that. He's not something new. He's not something different. This is not a new religion. It isn't novel. It isn't fanciful. It is, in fact, the apex of what God has been doing all along. And in this song that we find that Zechariah sings and this text that we look at this morning, this uh, becomes very clear to us, and, and so I hope you'll see it. Uh, we have been looking at Zechariah and Elizabeth. We've looked at, at what we see of God really through the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we've sort of walked through the whole narrative at this point. How the angel of, of, uh, of the Lord appears to Zechariah and informs him that he and his wife are going are to conceive late in life. And they're going to give birth and they're going to name this son John. And John is going to be the one who is going to fulfill the prophecies of Malachi. The, the, the forerunner of the Messiah who is to come. And we've watched as Zechariah has responded to that, not with faith, but with faithless and foolish words and, and doubt and questioning, focusing on uh, the specific uh, uh, issue of how in old age they can conceive and have a child, how that's possible, missing the broader picture of the miracle that God is about to work in the world through his son and the son that will follow his, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we watched last week as Zechariah was mute and deaf for nine to ten months through the entire uh, uh, time that Elizabeth is carrying John in her womb up until the time that she gives birth and, and they go through this sort of family controversy of naming him John at which point Zechariah's lips are, are loosed and for the first time in some nine, ten months or however long it's been uh, he can finally speak, he can hear and he, his voice returns to him and so we were sort of left on a cliffhanger last week with the idea that his voice returned, but we have no idea what is it that he's going to say. What is this man going to say after all this time not being able to speak? 
what is he going to say? Surely he's thought about the first words that are going to come out of his mouth. What are they going to be? And here we find that the first words out of his mouth are a song. It's one of the four songs that we find in Luke's gospel. We've already looked at the first one. It was the song of Mary, the Magnificat. This is the song of Zechariah, sometimes referred to as the Benedictus. Maybe you've heard that before. It's, again, just like the Mary's song, the Magnificat. It's, it's, it's named that or it's called that because of the first word in the Latin of this text is the word Benedictus, just as um, Magnificat was the first word of Mary's song. And so that's how you'll sometimes hear people refer to this song. But Zechariah sings. That's the first thing that he does when, when God looses his lips. He, he bursts forth in a song. And we're told that that song is spurred, if you will, by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 67 with me. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, really singing, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Now it's important, I, I, I think, to note here that Luke makes point to tell us that Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. And I want to pause this morning. We mentioned this briefly last week. But I want to pause and dwell here for a moment and, and point out a distinction that maybe you know or maybe you, you don't know. But that is that the, the way that the work of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, worked in the Old Testament is distinctly different, different from the way that he works in the lives of believers in the New Testament. And it's important for us to note, if we're to understand what's meant here by the fact that Zechariah was at this moment filled with the Holy Spirit. We could spend a whole sermon on this. I'm going to try and give you a quick flyby, uh, just sort of uh, uh, to, to give you some, paint some sort of a context here. Um, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, how did the Holy Spirit work differently in the Old Testament uh, versus the New Testament? Well, what did the Holy Spirit do? What do we see in Scripture that the Holy Spirit did in the Old Testament? Well, we see several things. We see back in Genesis 1 that the Holy Spirit was involved in creation. Do you remember the creation story? We had the Spirit hovering over the waters in Genesis chapter 1 right at the very beginning. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And He was integral in the, the creation story. So He was involved with the creation of all things. As we flip our pages in the Old Testament, we find that that's not all, not all he did. And he was also involved in empowering people to do certain things. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this phrase that people were filled with the Holy Spirit. Or the Holy Spirit came upon so-and-so. And, and so the, the idea there is that the Holy Spirit would, would come upon them or would fill them in such a way that they would be empowered in particular ways for particular tasks at a particular time. In, in another way of saying that, he enabled them to do particular things that they wouldn't ordinarily be able to do supernaturally that were way beyond the scope of what they could have done on their own. And we see this in several contexts. He, he did this in the light of various national leaders of Israel in the Old Testament. They were empowered or filled by the Holy Spirit. If you were to look through the book of Judges, you would see this over and over again. A couple of examples. Chapter 3 of Judges, speaking of, a, of a, one of the leaders by the name of Othniel. It says, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. This particular leader had the Holy Spirit come upon him, and empower him to be one of the judges over Israel over Israel. Gideon in, in chapter 6 of Judges, the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet. In chapter 11, Jephthah, the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. 
So we see how the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, was involved with these national leaders, empowering them to lead in ways that were godly and good and right, particularly that is who is to, to receive the credit when they did rule that way. We know that there were many leaders who did not rule that way, and it's clear evidence that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was not empowering and upon them. It was also true if we flip further in the Old Testament of Israel's kings. David is noteworthy in this regard. In 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 13, we read this, Then Samuel took the horn of oil, and he anointed him, that's David, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And so in some unique way at his anointing for king, as king, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, came upon David, or in this case rushed upon David, and empowered him to rule uh, in ways that were godly and good and right, to do incredible things that David did as king. But it wasn't just national leaders, it was also the prophets that the Holy Spirit was involved in. He empowered his prophets primarily to speak God's truth without fear. And so we see many of the Old Testament prophets say things like Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 5. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, quote, Say, thus says the Lord. When God had a message to deliver to his people, he would deliver it via the Holy Spirit to his prophet. And his prophet would understand that the Holy Spirit was coming upon him and delivering him this message that he was then empowered to deliver to God's people. It wasn't just that. I mean, it was something else that maybe you wouldn't even notice. In Exodus chapter 31, we find that the Holy Spirit empowered other people to do other things, even craftsmen. If you were to read back to Exodus 31, and they're talking about the context, the building of the temple. Uh, the Lord said to Moses in verse 1, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, and to work in every craft. All of the items that this man and his associates were to build to be used in the worship of God in his temple were, were built under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit who, who guided them and empowered them to be supernaturally remarkable at what they were doing. And so the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit was involved in creation. He was involved in empowering various people by coming upon them and giving them the ability to do things that they wouldn't normally be able to do. And he was also responsible for the revelation of Scripture. That's true in both the Old and the New Testament. Second Peter chapter 1 Peter writes this in verse 20, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by whom? By the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. The men did the writing physically, but it was the Holy Spirit who carried them along and produced the message. And so in the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit working this way in the lives of people. It's, it's different from what we see in the New Testament, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. Um, let me just sort of set it up this way for you in a quick uh, sort of this versus that. In, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's ministry was with men. In the New Testament, his ministry was in men. 
So in the Old Testament, he <clears throat> came alongside and helped men do things. And then we'll see in a moment, he, he sort of departed from them. In the New Testament, the picture of the Holy Spirit is upon believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and coming to faith in him, we are indwelled by the Spirit of God who takes up residence inside of us permanently. And so the Spirit of God works from within the believer in the New Testament, not just coming alongside externally. This was prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 36. When God says to Ezekiel, there's a day coming when I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So in the New Testament, the spirit of God is working from within side of us. In the Old Testament, he was largely coming alongside externally and empowering people. He was with them to do something. A second difference is this. In the Old Testament, there was his ministry sort of was a selective involvement versus a universal indwelling. That was to say he didn't sort of he, he wasn't involved in the lives of every believer. He came upon certain people for certain tasks and empowered them but not everybody. In the New Testament, it's every believer is indwelt by the Spirit of God. It's a permanent indwelling of all believers. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You, Paul writes to Christians, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, say this part with me, does not belong to him. Those who belong to Christ have the Spirit of God indwelling them universally. Every believer, not just some. And then, I guess finally I would say this. In the Old Testament, it was a temporary involvement of the Spirit rather than a permanent indwelling. So there's a, a sort of a, 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 a time factor involved. He would come upon people for a time, and then sometimes he would leave. In the New Testament, it's a permanent indwelling, as we just saw in Romans chapter uh, eight. Let me just give you an example of that. Judges chapter 16, verse 20. Really a, a sad verse. It's, the context is Samson. God, the Holy Spirit had empowered him with unique strength. But we find uh, something remarkable in verse 20. Uh, this is after he's given up the, the, the secret to, uh, uh, to his, uh, his bride, uh, his bridezilla, if you will. Uh, I don't know why that came into my mind as a show, I think. That's what she was, uh, temptress, evil woman. Um, and he woke from his sleep and said, I'll, I'll go out uh, as at other times and I'll shake myself free. She cut his hair while he was asleep and broke his vow. But he didn't know that when that happened, what happened? Well, the Lord had left him. That's the Holy Spirit who had been empowering him, empowering him with that supernatural strength had left him. Had left him. And he was a, he was a mere mortal at that point. And so a good example there of how the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament came upon people temporarily to do a task, and then often he would leave. But in the New Testament, the picture of the work of the Spirit is a permanent indwelling in the life of every believer where he empowers us to work and to do the things of God, where he transforms us from the inside day by day into the image of Christ. He convicts us of sin. He illuminates the scriptures and so many other things that he does internally in the lives of the believer. And it's important for you to understand that distinction because when here Zechariah is, is talking about this song or, or Luke is telling us about Zechariah singing this song, he says that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. That is the Spirit of God came upon him like he did others in the Old Testament. And out of that process, 
This song sort of bursts forth. He's filled with the Spirit. His tongue is loosed. And he sings. He sings. Zechariah gets his voice back. You remember God hit the mute button months earlier, right? Because of his faithless and his foolish words. And God had removed from his life all the distractions of hearing and all the distractions of talking. Imagine how your life would be different, at least, if all the distractions of hearing and all the distractions of talking were gone. You'd have a whole lot more time to think, wouldn't you? Zechariah had a lot of time to think. He couldn't hear anybody else's conversations. He couldn't say anything to carry on a conversation. He's been thinking. And he's been thinking for a long time now. He's been thinking. And God has been, by the power of the Holy Spirit, connecting the dots in this man's mind. Initially, all he could think about when Gabriel came to him is how in the world he and his old wife could conceive and give birth to a child. He had missed the broader picture of what God was doing in the plan of redemption. And so God quiets him and closes his ears and gives him months to think about this. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he connects all these dots in Zechariah's mind. And so when he opens his mouth, this song of praise just erupts out of this man because he's been contemplating the miraculous, the marvelous, the glorious work of God in redeeming men for all this time. And he is in awe of what God is doing. And so the first thing out of his mouth is a song of praise. He's had time to to think about Gabriel's words. He's had time to connect the dots between all that he knew as a priest who taught the Old Testament and what the Gabriel had told him and what was transpiring in front of him. And the light bulb had come on and he saw the glory of God in his plan of redemption and song bursts out of his heart. And I think it's worth noting that praise and song is the natural godly response to a clear vision of God. What this man got in his months of silence and deafness was a fresh and clear vision of Almighty God. And when you and I ever catch a fresh glimpse of the glory and the majesty and the power of God, it's awe-striking. And you can't help but respond to that with praise that comes out of you. There's a joy that comes from seeing God and understanding who he is and what he's doing in the world and what he's doing inside of you. And throughout the history of God's people, the way we've expressed that joy and the way we've expressed that gratitude and the way we've expressed that awe and wonder at God is through through song. It's through singing of the majesty and the glory and the power and the might of Almighty God and the wonder of who he is. And it's for that reason that singing has always been an integral part of the worship of God's people. But it's a sad reality that in so many, far too many contexts today, God's people and their singing is cold and disinterested and it's weak. John Piper, in a sort of a famous quotation that he wrote many years ago, sort of lamenting the the, the coldness of the gathered worship of God's people said this. He said, for many, Christianity has become the grinding out of doctrinal laws from collections of biblical facts. But childlike wonder and awe have died. The scenery and the poetry and the music of the majesty of God have dried up like a forgotten peach in the back of the refrigerator. It's often quite true, isn't it? 
I suspect if you were to be honest about your own walk with the Lord and your own engagement in singing and worship, you would have to be honest with yourself as I have to be honest with myself and, and say that there are seasons and, and, and times in my life and in your life where our worship, and particularly through song, has been like that peach in the back of the, the, back of the fridge all dried up and, and, and dead. I mean, we come and we, we go through the motions of it, we, we do the mechanics of it, and we go through the intellectual ex- exercises of it, but there's no emotion, there's nothing that grabs our heart, there's nothing that grabs our emotion, there's nothing that moves us to awe and wonder from the inside that's coming out of us in song. It's just words that are happening because it's what everyone else is doing in the moment, and so we sit or we stand like a robot or a stone, coldly going through the motion of heartless worship. The reason that happens in your life quite often, the reason it happens in my life is because we're not regularly encountering God in our lives privately. We're not regularly engaging him through his word on our own. We're not regularly spending time quiet before him in prayer where he's revealing himself to us and we're seeing him in all of his glory and majesty and it's igniting within us a fresh love and passion and joy in him. And because we're not doing that, our our worship gets cold and it dies and we come and we just sort of mouth the words. Our lives are filled with so many distractions, aren't they? Isn't that true? So much talking, so much listening, and so little quiet reflection on the Lord and who he is and what he's doing. I just bring that up to say to you this, if your worship has grown cold, if that's where you are right now in your walk with the Lord and you gather with God's people and you go through the motions of singing, but you know in your heart there's, there's no joy, there's no wonder, there's no majesty at who God is. It's, it's, it's words coming out of your mouth, but there's no heart and there's no passion. It's a good opportunity to stop and reflect on the reality. Maybe my life is filled with way too many distractions, too much talking and too much listening to other people talk and I haven't spent time quiet before the Lord before his word and in prayer. The problem isn't the the music, it isn't the song selection, it isn't the music director, it isn't the pastor who's preaching. The problem probably resides within us and a lack of quiet in our lives and too much distraction. Zechariah had the wonderful benefit of God giving him a lengthy time of quiet reflection. He probably didn't see it as that at the time, don't you think? But by the time it's over, he's so enraptured by who God is, it bursts out in a song. This song, you can just see this man, the moment his lips are open, sing at the top of his lungs the glory and the majesty of God, what he's been reflecting on, what God has shown him through this time of quiet about who his son is and who the Messiah is going to be and how he connects all the dots of the Old Testament as bringing to bear the culmination of all of God's Old Testament promises. It just flows out of this man's heart. And he sings this song. We could spend a couple weeks literally on this song, but I just want to sort of give you a flyby this morning. You could split this song up into really two parts. Up to verse 75 is the first part, and we could just summarize it by saying the first part of his song, Zechariah is reflecting backwards on God's work in the past and how that's culminating with the birth of his son, John, and ultimately with the son who's to follow, Jesus. The last half of the song is the, the tense of the verbs changes from past to future. 
And it, it is uh, uh, Zechariah switching from looking back at how God has worked in the past and connecting that to the birth of his son to now looking forward in what God is doing and is going to do through the Messiah who is going to be born after John. So you can sort of separate the song and a reflection backwards and Zechariah reflecting forwards. And again, we'll just catch the overview of all of that. When he looks back, he's had time. He's reflected on the Old Testament because that's what this priest knew. He taught the Old Testament, so he knew the Old Testament. So he's been thinking about it, and the Spirit of God has been connecting the dots and helping him to see how what is unfolding right in front of him, the birth of his son, this miraculous birth, and the birth of the child that is currently in Mary's womb, not yet born, how all of that is connected to what he knows of the Old Testament and what God has promised generations earlier. And he's able to see that his son John is going to be the bridge between the Old Testament and the New. He's going to be both the last of the Old Testament prophets and the forerunner of the Messiah at one and the same time. And in understanding this connection, that John is the connecting point that shows us that God isn't doing something new. He isn't creating a new religion. He is actually, in, in bringing the Messiah, continuing what he's been doing all along. And John is the bridge that connects us that way. And when he sees it, he's flat blown away. And he understands two things, at least, that God is doing here in this time in his life. And he says it this way. He says God is visiting his people, and he says God is redeeming his people. Now, the idea of God visiting his people is a common theme in the Old Testament. It describes God's coming near to them for a purpose. In the Old Testament, when you read about God visiting his people, he's usually coming for one of two things. He's either visiting them to bless them, or he's visiting them for what? In judgment, right? And so this, this is a way of casting the idea that God is coming near, that he's coming close, that he's getting up close and personal with his people for a reason and for a purpose, either to, 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 to punish them or to bless them. And here he clearly sees that God is coming near to his people in blessing, not judgment. The supernatural God is invading natural man. And, and, and it's important to understand this because recall, God hasn't visited his people in how long? Up to Zechariah's day, at least 400 years. No word from the Lord. No visit from the Lord. No prophet from the Lord. Nothing. Silence from the Lord. And Zechariah realizes that in the birth of his son, that God is for the first time in centuries visiting his people once again. And his heart is overflowing with joy because like every other good Jew in his day, he's wondering and he's longing for God to once again visit his people. He's, he's dying on the vine because God has been silent for so long. And he's wondering, will God be silent forever? Is God ever going to visit his people again? And he sees by the power of the Holy Spirit and the birth of his son that God is visiting his people, his people Israel. And he's going to do it through his own son, John. He's come near after all these centuries to fulfill his word. But he's not just doing that. He's coming to redeem his people. And that word redeem means to pay the price to release someone from bondage. That what he's done in, in coming near is he's come near with a goal of redemption. That what God has come to do is to pay a price to redeem his people. 
And redemption is a theme all throughout the Bible. It's one that we'll come back to many times in Luke's gospel. But it's the idea that people need to be redeemed. The reality of the New Testament is this, that God's people, that all people are born in this world enslaved to sin. We are under the curse of law. We are captivated by Satan and the power of the evil one. And we absolutely cannot earn our way into God's favor. We cannot redeem ourselves by our good works. We cannot redeem ourselves by going to church. We cannot redeem ourselves by being religious or trying to be good and moral people and upstanding citizens in our culture. What is needed is redemption. And God has to work redemption. And God does work redemption for his people through the Messiah who is to come and through his sacrificial death on the cross. But that's not primarily how Old Testament saints, saints understood redemption. Old Testament saints like Zechariah and the contemporary Jews of his day would have thought of redemption a different way. They saw themselves enslaved to a physical earthly power, the Romans. And they understood redemption to be that God was going to send an earthly political king who was going to be of the line of David, who was going to bring earthly political sort of deliverance or redemption, who was going to buy them out of of, of, of sort of the bondage of being enslaved to a, another world power and was going to liberate them and defeat their enemies and establish his own earthly kingdom and return Israel to its former glory. That was their idea of what redemption was going to look like. That an earthly political king and ruler was going to come and do those things. And they were absolutely wrong on two fronts. They were wrong about what their worst problem was. They thought their worst, worst problem was foreign powers who were oppressing them. That wasn't their worst problem. Their worst problem was sin in their hearts that had condemned them. But they were also wrong about the solution, which they thought was a powerful king to defeat their enemy and free them. The real solution was a dying savior who dies in their place. But they didn't understand this. They didn't understand this. So they're thinking in terms of a political leader who's going to come and redeem them. And they've been looking for that for centuries. And they were looking in the wrong place for redemption. But God indeed was coming to redeem his people, just not in the way that they thought. And so in visiting them and in redeeming them, what God is doing is he is, he is fulfilling both the, the Davidic covenant and the Old Testament Abrahamic covenant. This is what we see as the song progresses. If you read through the, the song of Zechariah, you'll see him mention uh, David and the throne of David. And you'll see him mention also the promise to uh, our father, he says, uh, Abraham. He reflects back on both the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant in his song. And he does that because these are two of the most important Old Testament covenants. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's able to see that the Messiah who is getting ready to be born, for whom his son is the forerunner, is going to be both the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant in the Old Testament. And this absolutely astounds Zechariah, and it causes him to burst forth in this joyful song. Now, I know that you're all Old Testament scholars, right? Just nod your head this way if that's true. And so you understand Old Testament covenants and Davidic covenant and Abrahamic covenant. And so I'm not speaking Chinese to you right now, right? I'm looking at that look on your face and I'm assuming that's not true. So maybe we should give a quick overview of those things so that we understand what he's talking about in this song. Let me just give you a quick overview of this. There were multiple covenants God made with his people. Promises, pledges, if you will, in the Old Testament. 
the two key ones that are important for our text today are the Davidic covenant. And if you would write down in your notes, 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, you'll find there, beginning in verse 8, the Davidic covenant. And I'll just read to you from that text. You don't have to flip there. This is God speaking through the prophet to David. And he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep. You remember David was a shepherd boy. That you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make for you a great name and like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time I had appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, or make for you. No, he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers, and I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's a pretty remarkable thing for God to say to a person, right? But to summarize all that, there are some key things that are a part of this promise that God makes to David. And like much of Old Testament prophecy, whether it came through the prophets, uh, uh, the minor, major minor prophets, or through like the prophet Nathan here, the prophecies that point to the future often have an immediate and a long-term fulfillment. They're often split. That is to say, God makes a promise, and that promise has something near in proximity to that that fulfills a portion of that, but there's a greater and larger and ultimate fulfillment that is way down the timeline of history yet to come. And so we see that in the Davidic covenant here that God makes with David. He promises him and his descendants a land, right? A very specific land, their own land, where they'll live in peace. A land where they'll have relief from their enemies, right? Nobody's going to harass them anymore and try to take them over and enslave them. And he promises that he's going to have a son who's going to succeed him. And he tells them some details. The son's going to build a temple for him. And he's going to do some other things. That was immediately fulfilled in his son, Solomon, who did indeed build the temple for the Lord. And after his death, the kingdom gets divided. But what we notice in that is, he splits from talking about Solomon to talking about another son after Solomon. How do you know that? Because he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So there's another son that's coming after Solomon, sometime down the road of history. Another son who's going to have a kingdom that is going to be established forever. A kingdom that will not end. It will be an eternal kingdom He'll have an eternal kingdom and a people who belong to him under his rule. And he'll have an eternal throne where he will have authority to rule forever. That is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And you'll notice that this covenant is unconditional. Sometimes covenants are, are conditional. That is, two people come together and they make a promise. I'll do this and you'll do this. If either one of us breaks it, the covenant is void and null. Null and void. 
either way. An unconditional covenant like this one is one where two people make a covenant, but it's all based on one person. And this one, God is making all the promises and there's nothing conditioned upon these promises. In other words, it's irrevocable. It is unconditional. Regardless of how David or any of his descendants respond or react to it, God is going to keep this promise. He's going to fulfill it. And all throughout the Old Testament, we saw that the Jewish hope was that this Messiah, based on this covenant, would come from the line of David. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, execute justice and righteousness in the land. For generations, Israel had longed for and had prayed for this Davidic king to come. They had prayed for him. And Zechariah now understands that he's living in the time when that is going to happen. That his son, John, is the forerunner of this king who's to come, the Messiah. Jesus is going to fulfill what he and his Jewish friends have longed for for centuries, and he's going to see it with his own eyes. It's not just that. He mentions Abraham and the promises to Abraham. Flip in your Bibles, if you want to, to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. This is going back even further. God visits a man by the name of Abram, and he later changes his name to Abraham, and he makes a covenant with him. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land I'll show you, and I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you, and I'll make your name great, and so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I'll curse, and in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Another unconditional covenant. Write down in your notes Genesis 13 and Genesis 15 because this covenant is repeated in both of those. And in Genesis 15, God even goes to the, to the, um, uh, to the extent of having a ceremony with Abram by which they cut some animals in half, and, which was a typical way of making a pledge at the time when usually you you'd cut animals in half and two people who were making a covenant would walk between and it was their way of saying, if I break this covenant I'm making with you, may what happened to these animals happen to me. That's a pretty bloody way of showing fidelity to a covenant, right? Whatever happened to just a handshake and saying I'm going to keep my word. But um, regardless, that was how they did it. But in Genesis 15, God engages in this sort of familiar way of, of ratifying a covenant with Abram. The problem is, or the difference is, he puts Abram to sleep and he passes through the parts of the animal alone. It's a one-sided covenant. It doesn't depend on Abram or Abraham. It only depends upon God. And this covenant, in some ways, is similar to the Davidic covenant. In other ways, it's different. There are some promises that come in the Abrahamic covenant to his people. Again, a land. You heard that, right? They give you a land, a specific land. He even lays out the demographics of the land, the geographic uh, sort of uh, lay of the land, a, a large territory, a specific territory. And by the way, at no point in Israel's history at this point has Israel occupied all of that land. God has not yet fully fulfilled that portion of the Abrahamic covenant. That happens at the end when Messiah returns. But not just a land are they promised, a people with many descendants. Which was completely fascinating at the time because Abram and Sarah, much like Zechariah and Elizabeth, were old and had no kids. And yet God promises them that your children are going to be like the sand on the seashore. 
They're going to be like the number of stars in the heavens. Of course, God works a miracle to bring that about. But he also promises them blessing and redemption. Blessing and redemption. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who dishonor you. And here's the key thing. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you and through your descendants. That God is going to make the descendants of Abram, later Abraham, a blessing to all the people of the world. That the redemption that was flowing from God was going to flow through Abraham and through his people out to the entire world. And Zechariah, in his nine or ten months of silence, by the power of the Spirit of God, sees that this child who's to be born, after his child, is the Messiah who will ultimately fulfill that Abrahamic covenant. That this Jesus who is going to be born is the Messiah and he's going to see him and he's going to know him and this Messiah is going to fulfill all that's been promised to the Jewish people and that redemption that was promised to come to all the peoples of the world was getting ready to come and he refers to him later in this as the sun who is going to shine or the sunrise that is going to dawn on the earth. The light of the glory of God is about to shine to all peoples of the earth and he's going to come through Abraham's seed and he knows this because he knows Mary who's pregnant and Mary is of the line of David. And all the dots connect. The Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. And Zechariah is blown away at what God is doing. And as he holds baby John in his arms and he looks down at that precious little baby who's doing whatever the baby, babies do, he's looking at him and he's thinking, you, you son, God's got a marvelous plan for you. You're going to be called the prophet of the Most High in verse 76. You're going to go before the Lord and prepare his ways. You're going to remind people that they need salvation. And you're going to bring to their awareness the reality that they're sinners who need forgiveness. And he must have marveled as he looked in that little baby's eyes, right? All of what God has promised is coming to bear in his little life. And here in his arms, he holds the fulfillment of centuries of Old Testament prophecy. And his mind is blown. But he understands that his own son, John, is second of importance, not first. Because he turns his attention immediately to the Messiah who is to come. And he calls him the sunrise that shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the ways of peace. And he begins to talk about the illuminating work of the Messiah. The sunrise that shall visit, that will give light in the midst of darkness. That's a theme we'll come back to later in the future. But suffice it to say they had been longing for that. Isaiah 9 verse 2 the people who had walked in darkness, Isaiah said what? It's seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light is shown. Isaiah was seeing this day long in the future when God would raise up the Messiah who would be a sunrise on a dark day. I don't know if you've seen the sunrise lately, but they're pretty glorious, aren't they? Danielle and I had gone away a, a few weeks back and we were... We'd just gone up to Myrtle Beach for a couple of days and we happened to be in a hotel room up high, right looking, you could look out over the, the ocean. And one morning we had gotten up early and it was the first time that I can remember 
uh, in a very, very long time when I actually watched the sun rise. It wasn't on purpose, trust me. I don't know why. We just got up and it just happened, but it was the Lord's blessing of the day that just happened to go, hey, let's see what it looks like outside. And, and it was right at that moment when the sun was just peeking out. It was perfect. You could just see the sun peeking over the horizon and everything was still dark. And in just a matter of minutes, I had forgotten what that was like and how quickly the sun rises when you're watching it. But in just a matter of minutes, that little tiny ray of light peaked, it just would, would burst forth over the darkened waters. And, and it was just amazing. I was captivated to watch as it just rose and the light began to shine and daylight in the midst of darkness. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing. I got some great pictures of it. I'll bore you with if you want to see them. But it's a beautiful picture of what the Messiah was going to do. And Zechariah understands this, that the world he lived in was filled with darkness. Just like the world you and I live in is filled with darkness all around us. And that the Messiah has come to shine a light of glory into the midst of our darkness, to shine a ray of hope into our hopelessness, to shine a hope for the salvation of the people of God in the midst of the hopelessness of sin. The sunrise is going to come and shine a light on the world. And Jesus would later say in his ministry, he would stand up in a group of people and he would say to them, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Because that's who he is. Zechariah and every generation since him has lived in a dark world. You don't have to look hard and you don't have to look long to see the, the sin and the effects of sin in our world, right? Has it ever been more clear to you than in these days in which we live in the United States of America that sin and evil are around us, saturate our culture, dominate our culture, drive our culture, saturate most people and drive most people? Just like in Zechariah's day, the last thing in the world we need is some human king to come and deliver us. If that's where you're looking for your hope, then you are looking in the wrong, wrong place. There is no king. There is no president. There is no legislator who can deliver you from sin, who could be a sunrise into the midst of the darkness. Every world leader is at best, at, at best a mixed bag of good stuff and bad stuff at best. The only question is how much of each one. It's just a matter of degrees. But none can deliver. And just like the Jews who were looking for an earthly king to subdue their enemies and deliver them, I think sometimes Christians today, based on what I'm seeing and hearing around me quite often, I'm thinking Christians are looking for the same kind of thing. If you're looking for that, then you're, you're running on a fool's errand. If you thought President Trump was going to deliver you, you're crazy. If you think the next president or the one after that is going to deliver you, you're even crazier. If you think some group of legislators are going to get elected and bring righteousness to this nation, you're a fool. It's not going to happen ever. Stop hoping in that. Your only hope is in the baby who was born after John. And his name is Jesus, the Messiah who's to come. He's the only one who can deal with sin and corruption and darkness and shine the light of truth and righteousness into it all. That is your only hope. It is my only hope. Our only hope is that we would look to Jesus, the Messiah. We would confess our sins, that we would repent and turn from our wicked ways and turn toward him. We would cry out to him to save us, and we would bow before him, giving him our lives as Lord and our Savior. If you haven't done that, then you need to do that today. 
because who knows how much time you have left. You watch world events, things are winding to a conclusion. Things are winding to a conclusion. And the one who came as a sunrise in the midst of darkness in Zechariah's day is going to return a whole different way. He's going to visit not to bless, but to judge the world. And he's going to come riding on a horse. You can read about it in Revelation. And at that point, the opportunity will have passed to bow before him and confess your sin and entrust your life to him and find his forgiveness and find redemption of your soul in him. You must do that now. You must not delay. Experience his blessing rather than his judgment. Why would you die when you can live? Why would you live enslaved to sin when you can be free? Messiah has come. Zechariah saw it. He saw it. Do you see it? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we understand that just like Zechariah, we can't possibly understand who you are except that the Spirit of God open our eyes that we might see. We can admire the facts about you. We can even be intrigued by the history of who you were in your time on earth. But we can't fully understand the glory of who you are in relation to our souls. It's the Holy Spirit who we pray that just like you did for Zechariah, that you would open our eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ, that he is indeed the Messiah who's come to redeem our souls, to save us from our sin, to give us eternal life. If there are any who have not seen his glory yet, open their eyes, we pray right now, Lord, that they might see and that they might be drawn to faith in him. And Lord, for those of us who know you as our Lord and Savior, we rejoice like Zechariah. We're awestruck at who you are and what you've done. We can't believe that you would come to people such as us and redeem us. Our hearts overflow with praise that you've done that. May we live in righteousness. May we live in holiness in such a way that the world around us in its darkness would see you through us. We pray for your holy sake. Amen.